Please rise for the reading of God's Word. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 17, we're going to read the first four verses, but we will be looking at the first 15 verses this morning. So hear now God's Word. And now when they had passed through Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So how do you conquer the world? Well, according to Acts, apparently it's the same way you eat eat the proverbial elephant, one bite at a time. We get a hint of this when God promised Abraham that he and his descendants were going to be a blessing to the nations. An old man and a barren old woman in the middle of nowhere, God said that they were going to change the world, be a blessing to the world. But where do you start? Well, the Bible tells us where Abraham started. You start by believing God. You say, but this is really hard to believe. Yes, it is. And he's a really big, big God. Abraham, Galatians 3, 6 through 9, believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith, like Abraham's, are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So God then told Abraham to start this work of changing the world at his house. Which we just saw pictured, by the way, in the Shields family and the baptism of their children. Genesis 18, 17 through 19. You've heard me quote a billion times because I think it's one of the central verses, um, passages. And Abraham Excuse me. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? In other words, my big pl- shall I tell him what the plan is? Here, old Abraham and old Sarah and no children. Shall I, shall I reveal it to him? Since Abraham shall surely, shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order, why, why do you got it? In order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do justice and righteousness. Why? So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And so it, uh, it began with the people that were in front of him. For Abraham, his family, his community, and that's also how you and I get to change the world by the grace of God with your children, family, neighbors, town, etc. The book of Acts 
chronicles the unfolding of this very same story and promise so that Jesus tells his disciples what? On the day of Pentecost. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Sounds like the Abrahamic promise, right? To the uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to bless all the nations. That's the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. And then, page after page, city after city, the word of God spreads, and we have already seen, and we're just now to chapter 17, and we have already seen thousands and thousands converted and many new churches planted. However, as the ancient promise of the gospel is fulfilled, as the light is, as the light dispels, uh, encounters and dispels the darkness, evil men and women don't like it. And opposition begins to rise. And so in the book of Acts, we have seen threats and opposition from the Jews, for example, at Pisidian Antioch, and also as in Philippi, we've seen pagan threats and opposition due to their concerns over their economic and political status quo. The church was becoming a real threat to the world as it was. Jesus had told his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures, uh, three measures of meal till it was all leavened. We have seen the gospel spreading like wildfire. We have seen the first missionary of, of journey of Paul and Barnabas, and we are in the middle of the second gener- uh, missionary journey of Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke. And we now come to Thessalonica where we will see the already familiar pattern of preaching in the synagogue, conversions of Jews and Gentiles, followed by strong opposition and persecution. That's the cycle. It's interesting even if we trace out those persecutions where Paul gets run out of town or others, uh, even with Stephen, the first martyr, we see how God takes that and then uses it to spread it even further. So let's look again at verses 1 through 5. Um, now when they had passed through Amphilippus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, was went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people." So in chapter 16, we ended with Paul and Silas having been released from prison in Philippi, stopping by Lydia's house, and then they departed. They headed out for Thessalonica, which, by the way, is about 100 miles away. This would be like traveling from here to Shreveport. Uh, I mentioned the distances between cities mainly to help us get a sense of the, the both the strategic thinking of 
uh, the Apostle Paul and, and what's going on as we see the gospel spread, but also it helps us get some uh, sense of the enormous commitment and effort made to advance the gospel. They didn't just hop in their car and go. This was a lot of labor. So Thessalonica was the province, of, uh, a, uh, the capital of the province of Macedonia and had about 200,000 people. These men uh, found a place to stay and they got settled. And apparently, we, we would presume based upon other things that they set up shop to generate some income. We read about this, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, so a, le- a letter that's written a few weeks after they leave Thessalonica. Paul writes back to them, and Luke doesn't mention it here, but in his first letter, he tells us that he and Silas labored and toiled night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And so from Acts 18, we know that, for example, Paul worked with Priscilla and Aquila as a tent maker. So perhaps that's also what he did there. He carried his tools, found somebody to work with, or set up his own shop. As was their habit, Paul and Silas went into the local synagogue, and they did so, we're told, for three Sabbaths in a row. And in God's providence, and for a variety of reasons, including Caesar's expulsion of the Jews from the city of Rome in AD 49, Jews had been dispersed actually for several centuries, and now they resided in many parts of the Roman Empire, which means there were many synagogues, which, by the way, this was a gateway that God used to open up for the gospel to spread. So as those synagogues were being planted all those years ahead of time, God had a plan there as well. Since the Jews were grounded in the scriptures, Paul set out to show them that the scriptures taught, taught, actually the Old Testament taught, that the Messiah was going to be the servant of the Lord who would come, be rejected by men, pierced for their transgressions, chastened by God, pour out his soul to death, and bear the sins of his people. These missionaries, again, are following the very pattern of what Jesus himself taught during his public ministry. That is, from Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. That's what Jesus had taught You'll recall that as we started this series of sermons, we actually began in the last chapter of Luke, in Luke 24, where Jesus, after his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, there were two disciples, and he appears to them, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, in other words, the whole Old Testament, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's it's been there all along. So this is the argument that Paul is making in the synagogues. Let's open our Bibles. Let's look. I'll show you what God had said previously. He said, this is what's going to happen. And Paul said, in fact, it has happened. He was demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. It had to happen. N.T. Wright observed in in reference to the sufferings of Jesus, he said, 
One way or another, this forms an important part of his explanation to the Jews, since the fact that the crucified Messiah is the major roadblock in the way of any devout Jew believing that Jesus was or could be God's anointed. How could God allow such a thing? How could God be honored thereby? And how could God do through such a Messiah the messianic work of bringing peace and justice to the world and the rebuilding of the temple? They had a different kind of expectation about what the Messiah was going to do. And Wright continues, It was a matter of the entire plan of God, the whole sweep of the narrative, the whole of the Old Testament story, if you will, The story of Israel going into the dark tunnel of slavery in Egypt only to be rescued uh, at the Passover, of David fleeing from Absalom only to be reinstalled after, after the great victory, of Jerusalem being destroyed and the nation carried away captive to Babylon only to be brought back and rebuilt after a tribulation that everyone thought would be final. In other words, of a story whose main themes were all about suffering and vindication, disaster and reversal, death and resurrection. From there, it was only a short step to the conclusion, if that's how the story works, and if that's what the messianic prophecies shaped it, are shaped by, it really does appear that this Jesus crucified and risen, is truly the Messiah. After presenting his case from the Scriptures, Paul then declared, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Messiah. The Greek word for demonstrating literally means to place beside, which likely refers to Paul's argument, which he took the prophecies and then their fulfillment in Jesus. Paul would later write to the Thessalonians and remind them in chapter First Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in, the power, uh, also in power and in the Holy Spirit. So God is attending this preaching. As a result, we're told, many believed. A great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And I wanted us to note here how often women play a prominent role in the Bible. In addition to their critical role in the Gospels, we've already seen in the book of Acts, Mary, who was the mother of John Mark, who provided her home as the place for the church in Jerusalem to meet. We have seen Lydia, a prominent businesswoman in Philippi. She opens her home to the disciples as well. And now we see more leading women converted to Christ. And in the next chapter, we will be introduced to Priscilla, another businesswoman and leading woman, she and her husband Aquila. And so Luke tells us that among the converts also were Aristarchus and Secundus, who later became Paul's fellow travelers. And in the case of Aristarchus, in Acts 20, we find out he was his fellow prisoner. But not everyone gave Paul and Silas a favorable response. Let's look at verse 5 through 9. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, 
set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people, that is, Paul and Silas. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security or bail from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So as we've seen before and we'll see again, not everyone welcomes the gospel. However, if Paul and Silas had been ineffective, then, it, then they simply would have been ignored. They and their message was, were perceived to be a great threat, and we are told they were envied by some of them uh, to go out and round up a mob uh, to create a commotion in the city. There's always some mercenaries for hire. I'll give you ten bucks. I'll give you a hundred bucks if you'll come join us. We need your help. And so we, we routinely see this kind of thing in our own day, don't we? Like the mob that stormed the house of Lot in the city of Sodom, now a mob is storming the house of Jason to arrest Paul and Silas, but they weren't there. And so they physically dragged out Jason and some other Christians who were there, took them to the city magistrates, and again referring to Paul and Silas said, these are those who have turned the world upside down. In other words, we've already heard about them. We've heard from other cities. We know what they're up to. They were accused of trying to foment radical social change and sedition against the Roman government. And I suspect that Paul must have been pleased that they at least understood that he wasn't just promoting some kind of private religious experience but was instead announcing to the world that its creator was setting the world right side up. This was a very serious charge. Essentially, it was the same thing that Jesus was charged with. If found guilty of this treason against the emperor, they could face execution. No doubt these local magistrates felt the political pressure, as did Pontius Pilate, to calm the mob, calm the mob, lest they be held responsible and deposed. In the Roman Empire, insurrections were met with very strong and violent responses. In fact, that's why there were so many hundreds and if not thousands of crucifixions by the Roman government. So Jason and the others were charged with harboring the primary troublemakers, acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar and proclaiming the authority of another king named Jesus. Again, the opposition did understand the basic message that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And so as believers, we are called, of course, to be law-abiding citizens, not revolutionaries. However, the kingship of Jesus has inescapable political implications and as his loyal subjects. We must always refuse to give unlimited support to rulers or ideologies that are contrary to Christ. Again, N.T. Wright's comments are helpful in helping us understand the context here. He said, if all of this took place, as it seems likely, around A.D. 50, 
we should remind ourselves that less than two decades later, no fewer than three emperors were hailed in far-flung parts of the empire as another king and installed in quick succession, making up for the year of the four emperors, A.D. 69. These things were all too possible and the charge all too believable. So Jason and the others who had been arrested were required to post bond, which likely included a requirement that, uh, with severe penalties that they no longer host Paul and Silas anymore. And then they were released. <clears throat> this is probably what Paul was referring to later when he wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 and said, We wanted to come to you, uh, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. 1 Thessalonians, as I said, was apparently written a few weeks after they depart for Athens. And in this letter, Paul expresses his deep sympathy for the suffering that Jason and the other Christians had suffered. So again, in 1 Thessalonians 3, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed for this, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it has happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So if Paul has left, or he's going to leave, but he hasn't forgotten them. Verse 10, 10 through 12. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Berea was about 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica, and again they went immediately to the Jewish synagogue when they arrived. They traveled basically the distance between here and Jacksonville, Texas. Um, by the way, uh, this is important because this is that trip, along with the other trips we read about, is what ultimately enabled the gospel to get to you and me and to those that will be reached in the future. In Berea, they presented the same message as they had before, but this time the Lord notes that they were more receptive, even eager. Moreover, they seriously evaluated what they were hearing. And so we have a few things to learn from the Bereans on how we should receive God's word. In other words, how should you be listening to sermons? First, as an attitude, they received the word favorably with readiness or eagerness of mind. They wanted to be there. They came anticipating They already believed that the scriptures were the word of God and had placed themselves under its authority. And let me say to you, that issue right there has to be settled first and foremost at the very beginning. Whatever God's word says is true. Whether I like it or don't like it, 
whether I agree with it or disagree with it, it's now my task as a follower of Jesus to understand it so that I can believe it and follow it. We don't sit in judgment of God. He sits in judgment of us. Our imperfect thinking must conform to his perfect way of thinking. So when we come to hear the word preached, we must come sincerely. We must come with enthusiasm and anticipation. They believed, the Bereans believed, it was both important and needful. That is the word. There was no half-hearted listening. They really wanted to be there. They really wanted to hear what was said. And I ask you, is that how you come on the Lord's Day to hear God's word? My friend Ben House once told me that when he taught in high school, I taught students American history section on the Puritans. One day he would come in and he said, I want to describe a group of people and, and their meeting and how many people would then gather and sit on, sit on hard benches for several hours, three or four hours, with no heat, no air condition. And then he asked the students how they would like to do that. And he said the students would moan. And then he would tell them, well, I was describing a football game. Oh. So it turns out our perspective and our attitude makes a significant difference, how we approach something. Second, they not only came with enthusiasm, but says they examined what was said. These folks didn't swallow whole. They wanted to chew and ruminate first. They were willing to do some research. They were willing to check things out. And this wasn't so easy in what we used to call, what we would call the olden days. It's likely that few, if any, of the Bereans had personal copies of the Bible. Therefore, they would have had to consult the copies that were in the synagogue. Perhaps they, it says they did it daily, so uh, maybe it was on their lunch break or before work or after. Luke is letting us know that their concern was not so much about the personality or rhetorical style of the preacher as it was the content of his message. And while the apostle, apostle Paul was more than capable, we have some indication that at least on some occasions it took some real effort to hang in there with the apostle Paul. So do you recall the story of Eutychus in Acts 20? Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room uh, where they were gathered together, and a window in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. I've seen that look on some of your faces. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. And we know the rest of the story. Paul brings him back. Now the opposite of this problem continues to be a temptation as well. Paul will warn Pastor Timothy in Ephesians, or excuse me, in 2 Timothy at Ephesus, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. That's the problem on the other side. And then the Lord himself spoke to the prophet Ezekiel, and there's this other problem kind of in the middle. So God says to Ezekiel, As for you, son of man, the children of your people 
are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother about the preacher here, the prophet, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as my people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, and they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So in other words, coming to church and listening to sermons is not enough. There is always, always a call to action, always a call to respond. And in fact, in one way or the other, we do respond. It's an inescapable concept. Third, the Bereans, verse 12, believed. Once they were persuaded of the truth, they eagerly responded in faith The Greek word that we have here translated believe means to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence in the thing they believed. They really believed it. And in this situation, their belief was going to likely cost them a great deal. This would affect their relationships, even their financial security. This will have political fallout. When a person pledges allegiance to Christ, they bow before a new king This is what baptism is. It's a sacrament, which is an oath of fealty or loyalty. And then finally, verse 13 through 15, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So he leaves Timothy and Silas behind to minister there to the Thessalonican Christians, and he gets out of town. They're coming after him. Here we go again. So a group from Thessalonica, uh, excuse me, I said Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica traveled 50 miles to get to Berea. That's where he's getting tossed out of now. And they ginned up a bunch of folks to create a ruckus. In a broken world, if there is no crowd being stirred up by what we're saying and doing, then it's likely we are not saying or doing what we need to be, what needs to be said and done. We are not called to be nice. We are called to speak the truth in love. And when we do, it will often be misrepresented as hate. Remember, there are people who call evil good and good evil. But telling the truth about a person's lost condition and his need of repentance and his need of a Savior is both true and loving. The world defines love as you approving of whatever it is they want to do. And if you don't approve of that, then you hate them. But you don't love your children that way. 
by giving them everything they want. At least I hope you don't. But rather you give them what they need. You often give them what they want. But you also often give them what they need and they don't want it. They don't want to go to bed. They don't want to eat that. They don't want to obey you. You see, the world has been upside down since the fall. The gospel is turning it right side up. This cannot be done without shaking things up, without mobs reacting. And we have had a very small taste of this, for example, when we've done, this is really minor in many ways, when we as a congregation have stood year after year out on North Street in October for the life chain. And you've all experienced it. We have received honks and waves and thumbs up and approval and blessing. But we have also received the middle finger of outrage and anger. But we know what the Apostle Paul knows. And it's always kind of subtly mentioned in Acts. Almost matter-of-factly. And some believed. The Holy Spirit's at work. There were people who were out on North Street on that day when we're standing there for one hour who are driving by who have a big decision to make who were raised in the church who know that, that, that what's going on is wrong and now they've been reminded and pricked and lives are being saved and people are being called back to what they've heard there are things going on that the Holy Spirit is doing that we don't see and we hear those stories from time uh, time and again, over and over, about somebody who says, this happened and the people who did that didn't know the impact they were having on me. Lives saved in every sense of the word. And so we conclude, Luke has laid out for us how the gospel clashes with the zealous Jews in the synagogues and with the economic and political forces of the Roman Empire next time. As we go to Athens, we will see how the gospel fares in the very heart of the pagan world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for your goodness to us, the gift of the gospel that has been transmitted to us down through the ages, year after year. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to delight in the good news of this story to be encouraged by it, to see how you took on the Roman Empire, took on the religious establishment, took on the pagan world with the good news that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he still is. And here we sit as proof. Help us to live accordingly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Famous English Baptist Pastor Charles Spurgeon commented on this passage and said, It is true they preached that which would disturb the sinful constitution of a kingdom and which would disturb the evil practices of false priests, but they never meant to set men in an uproar. They did come to set men at arms with sin and to draw the sword against iniquity, but against men as men, against kings as kings, They had no battle. It is with iniquity and sin and wrong everywhere that they proclaimed an everlasting warfare. They said the apostles turned the world upside down. 
they meant by that that they were disturbers of the peace. But they said a great true thing, for Christ's gospel does turn the world upside down. It was the wrong way upwards before, and now that the gospel is preached and when it shall prevail, it will just set the world right by turning it upside down. This is true of the world, and it must be true for each of us. King Jesus has come to set you and me right, to turn us around. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so we come again to the table of the Lord to remember that he came to turn us right side up and to change us into his image. Amen. Our great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who who keep his commandments, you are the faithful one. For you and your mercy condescended to us. Indeed, you have remembered your covenant, and we bow with grateful hearts. Send us forth, O Lord, with your blessing and with your strength. Help us to remember your covenant as well, that we might dwell forever in the house of the Lord. Bless this Lord's day for your glory and our good. Bless our resting and our feasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.